Hey there, and happy Monday. I'm Shayna, your host, and I'm back with your weekly crime fix. This week, we will be covering the yogurt shop murders. In 1991, the capital of Texas would experience tragedy when four young employees at a small yogurt shop called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt were brutally slain. This episode will be pretty long compared to previous episodes and contains graphic detail that involves teenagers. Listener discretion is advised. So with that being said, let's get started. The case I'm covering happened in Austin, Texas in 1991. Even back then, Austin was a busy town, with lots to do and surrounding area residents finding fun within the city. In 1991, the population of Austin was 596,000, so you can imagine the amount of activity happening. Austin, to some Texans, was a nice quiet place to raise a family. They didn't have to worry about a lot of the downsides of larger cities such as San Antonio, Houston, and even Dallas with gruesome crime being almost unheard of in larger parts of the city. It was considered a safe place to the majority of the residents back then. On December 6, 1991, Sergeant John Jones Jr. was on duty. At the time, CBS affiliates were filming, and he was the only homicide detective on duty that night, and he was well aware of it. The CBS affiliates were filming larger city police departments to kind of give people an idea of what was it like for the police then. Jones was pretty convinced that the crew would leave without any type of excitement that night, which obviously he was perfectly okay with, as would be anyone in the department or anyone in general for that matter. But to all of their dismay, it would only be one of the most terrifying and heartbreaking nights they would experience. This is where Austin yogurt shop murders became their reality. Jennifer Ann Harbison was born May 9th of 1974 to Mike and Barbara Harbison, and just a couple of years later, her sister Sarah was born on October 26th of 1976. They originally lived in the area of Texarkana. When Jennifer and Sarah were young, their mother had separated from their father and had moved herself and the girls to Austin. Eventually, their mother remarried, and the girls lived with their mother and stepfather, and both would attend private Christian schools through middle school at St. Louis Catholic Church. After middle school, both girls wanted to attend public school for their high school year, just to kind of give them the full grasp of the high school teenage experience. So their mother put them in Lanier High School. Obviously, due to the age gap, Jennifer would be the first to attend the school. She was very active in extracurricular activities, She was the president of the school's FFA, which stands for Future Farmers of America, and she ran the 400 and 1600 meters relay on the track team. One of her friends described her as opinionated and not afraid to speak up for herself, saying that she was more excited about life than most people. Jennifer was in her senior year when her sister was finally able to join her. After joining The high school, Sarah made an instant impact, and the principal even said that Sarah had established herself as assertive, enthusiastic. She was a leader and was a kid that was going to make 
a mark on the place. As Sarah was beginning high school, Jennifer was preparing for the future outside of school. Her mother wanted her to enjoy her teenage years, but Jennifer wanted to make some money for herself so that she could prepare for college. And her mother absolutely understood this and stood strong by her daughter's decision. Jennifer's father had purchased a Chevy S10 for her under two stipulations. One, that she helped make the payments, and two, she would take her sister where she needed to go. Jennifer had no problem at all with these stipulations and gladly agreed. Jennifer started working at an Albertsons, but later took a job at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, which was recommended by her best friend, Eliza. Now, Eliza Hope Thomas was born May 16th of 1974 to her parents, James and Maria Thomas. Like Jennifer, Eliza grew up in Austin. Also like Jennifer, she had one sister named Sonora. Eliza's parents separated in 1981, and her sister and her would split time between their mother and their father, and by December of 1991, Eliza was staying with their mother and Sonora with their father, which conveniently was just a few blocks from I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, where Eliza was working part-time. Eliza had also attended Lanier High School starting in her junior year. She transferred from McCallum High School due to wanting to be involved in the FFA, like Jennifer. She wanted to become a veterinarian. Her father later stated that she was nuts about animals. The FFA is what brought Jennifer and Eliza close together, and they became fast friends, and both would be nominated to be FFA queen in their senior year, which would become an exciting topic of conversation whenever it was brought up. Eliza also was mechanically inclined, and excelled in welding and small engine repair classes. She seemed to be a natural when it came to fixing things, which aided her well when she finally purchased her first car. A 1971 Volkswagen, it was bright green, which Eliza likened to her birthstone, emerald. The car didn't run, so when December of 91 rolled around, she asked for a large quantity of car parts and had planned on fixing it herself and eventually purchased a running car after starting her job at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. She had been working there for a few months and really enjoyed it because it was one of the only places that allowed teenagers to have like real responsibilities, allowing them to also work unsupervised and oftentimes her and Jennifer would close by themselves. Even having a few other friends come and hang out on occasion, like Sarah and Amy. Now, Amy Lee Ayers was born January 31st of 1978 to her parents, Robert and Pam Ayers. She was the second born with an older brother named Sean. Growing up in Texas, Amy quickly became a country music fan and was known for her crush on country music star, and legend in my eyes, George Strait. She loved animals, absolutely adored cats, but she took a liking to them all. Amy grew up on a ranch, so she grew used to the farming culture early on. She had even been riding horses since she was about three years old. Amy's father was asked if she was part cowgirl, and his response was no. Amy was all cowgirl. Amy's brother Sean participated in the FFA, and he helped Amy get involved early on. She didn't need much coaxing, though, and she was a natural fit. Amy became fast friends with the other girls, regardless of being younger. She was in middle school, but she was able to participate in the FFA at Lanier High School. And through the FFA, she became best friends with Sarah Harbison, even though they didn't get to hang out often due to attending different schools. 
Now, December 6th of 1991, it was the second to last Friday of the school semester. It was a bit gloomy for all of them that day. Winter break was coming up and everyone was getting prepared. Jennifer, 17 at this time, stopped by her boyfriend Sammy Buchanan's apartment. Sammy hadn't been to school that day because he had attended a family member's funeral. Jennifer and Sammy hung out for a few hours and Jennifer left and got home around 7. She had to work that night, so she got her work clothes and headed to work. On her way to work, she swung by and picked up Amy Ayers and dropped her and Sarah off at the mall. That was just up the street from the yogurt shop. Sarah, 15, and Amy, 13, ended up spending the evening at the mall. The mall was a go-to hotspot for teens back then, and it would almost always be crawling with all the girls and boys on the weekends. The mall was known for the movie theater and the ice skating rink, and this was one of the first times Amy and Sarah had been able to go to the mall by themselves, which might have been the coolest thing ever. I remember when I got to go somewhere with my friends by ourselves, we legit felt like all that in a bag of chips. (laughs) Anywho, the two planned to have a sleepover that night at Sarah's, and they were just going to ride back home with Jennifer when she got off of work. Jennifer and Liza both were working the yogurt shop that night, with Eliza's shift starting at 7 p.m. and Jennifer starting at 8, and they were responsible for closing up shop. And multiple customers came in and out of the shop throughout the next several hours, leaving breadcrumbs of witness sightings that police would later have to gather into a pile and sort out. Just before midnight, Troy Gay, an officer with Austin Police Department, was patrolling the northwest side of town when he happened upon Hillside Center Strip Mall, where the yogurt shop was located. He almost immediately noticed smoke coming from the shop itself. He called into dispatch at 11.47 p.m., and even though this may have been what seemed like a small kitchen fire, it sparked an immediate response, given there wasn't much going on that night. As the firefighters are arriving, Renee Garza, one of the firefighters on duty that weekend, recalls noticing the lights in the yogurt shop were off, with the closed sign facing out. He did notice as he approached he could see the flames blazing, and as the black smoke filled the room and obscured the view of anything else in sight, Garza and his fellow firefighters prepared to enter the building. They carefully popped the door open with a crowbar and began extinguishing the flames. Fortunately, the flames had been confined to a small space, and they regarded it as a two-alarm fire. Now, a two-alarm fire just means that it's big enough that they need to proceed with caution, but it's not to the point of, like, spiraling out of control. As they got the flames under control, they began gaining more visibility. As the flames dwindled down, a fellow firefighter of Garza's points to an object in the direction of the back of the yogurt shop and asks, Is that a foot? At that very moment, the grim realization devastated them all. This is the moment that changed not only the people that were involved, but the city of Austin as well. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to be a first responder then or now to go to a place that seems like, you know, an everyday call. I mean, you know, we don't want things to like catch on fire or whatever, but like to go to what seems like an everyday call just to stumble upon something even more horrific. Maybe that's why I'm not actually in that field of work, but I admire all of them from a distance and appreciate every second they risk their lives for us. This is when St. John Jones receives the call as he is being filmed in his car by the CBS affiliates. 
Even though the initial call the dispatchers only reported two bodies at the scene, that would quickly turn into three, and then as Jones was arriving, the body count was at four. These bodies were placed super weird. Three of them were found near the back door, basically stacked on top of each other, and then they were set on fire. The bodies had been burned so severely to the point of being unrecognizable, but the one thing that they knew is that these were the bodies of four young women. The women had been forced to undress, then were bound and gagged with their own clothing, only to be shot execution style. At that time, it was unknown if they had been dead before they were set on fire, but that is what they believed at the scene. So let's go over a timeline. Customers, as stated earlier, had come and gone at the yogurt shop. Between 8.15 and 8.30 p.m., a woman named Lucella Jones stopped in and picked up some frozen yogurt for her husband who had just had dental surgery. She recalled seeing two teenage boys sitting in a booth close to the door and at the time were the only two customers aside from herself in the shop. She said that they seemed to be interested in an item in the middle of the table that seemed to be a bag of some sort. What was in the bag isn't known, but a popular theory is that it was a bag of marbles. Both of the boys seemed to be regular-looking teenagers, but for that part of town seemed to be hoodlums. Lucella later described them as having messy, unkempt hair and appeared to be of the Hispanic origin, but couldn't say 100% on that. As unsure as she was about who they were at the time, they gave her a sense of unease, and that feeling would only grow in coming years. Then, around 9 p.m., Jennifer took a short break to go to the mall to pick up Sarah and Amy, since the mall was closing. After returning to the yogurt shop, Sarah and Amy walked a few doors down to a pizza shop called, I think it's Gotti's, but um, I could be wrong on that, since they were closing at 10 p.m. They took the pizza back to the yogurt shop. Several witnesses recall them sitting there eating pizza and being caught up in a conversation for the next hour or so. It was around 9.30 p.m. that Eliza's mom, Maria, came in, as she and the other parents regularly did when the girls were working weekends alone. She stayed for a few minutes, bought yogurt, and then left. She said everything seemed to be fine and that there was no other customers in the shop at the time. Somewhere between 9.30 and 10 p.m., a former military police officer, also known as an MP, and the owner of a security company called Daryl Croft came in to the shop. He was accompanied by some acquaintances. When he got there, he noticed that there were two separate younger couples as well as an individual younger man. Croft recalls the man having a deep voice and a large nose, and he was somewhat fidgety, especially when speaking to Croft. The young man seemed to be a bit bewildered by Croft's vehicle that had been parked in front of the shop. The vehicle Croft was driving was one for his company that had lights similar to that of a police car. Croft watched the man order a soda and go towards the bathroom, but he stated that by the time he left, he hadn't seen the young man leave. Croft wouldn't be able to provide any other details aside from saying that the young man was wearing a green jacket that resembled something like a jacket you would get from like a military surplus store. The shop was due to close at 11 p.m. and there were several customers that would come in between 10 and 11 p.m. that would make purchases, but the last purchase was registered that had registered, sorry, 
the timestamp of 1042 p.m. to a couple that had just gotten out of a movie and wanted to grab some dessert before heading home. This couple did report seeing a couple of people who they thought may have been men uh, sitting at a table closest to the register. They were both wearing jackets or thick sweatshirts, which hindered a view of their faces, but one appeared more muscular than the other. They were unable to get a good look at them, but the couple didn't believe they needed to know at that time. The couple had left the store at approximately 10.47 p.m., and by the time one of the teen, by that time, one of them had already started, you know, cleaning up, wiping down tables and stuff. While Jennifer and Eliza were the only employees, it is assumed that Sarah and Amy helped them in their evening duties to ensure that the girls were done closing in time. As stated earlier, Jennifer and Amy had planned to have a sleepover at Jennifer and Sarah's house that night and most likely just wanted to get on with their sleepover. The assumption that Amy and Sarah were helping came from the fact that in the last half hour before closing, several witnesses do not recall seeing them in the lobby. Sarah and Amy were regulars and were pretty accustomed to seeing Jennifer and Eliza do their jobs, so some assumed that the girls had moved from the lobby to the back and started cleaning up back there. As the clock inched closer to midnight, the teens weren't home, but the parents had no reason to suspect anything bad had happened. After all, the four girls were in the same FFA chapter at Lanier High School and regularly stopped by the school's off-campus site on North Lamar Boulevard to say goodnight to the animals that they were raising. Eliza had been raising a pig, while Jennifer and Sarah were raising lambs. The girls normally stopped by at least twice a day, so naturally, the parents assumed they had dropped by there to tend to the animals before heading home. Unfortunately, all was not well, and they had never made it out of the yogurt shop. The victims found in the shop that night would, in fact, be identified as 17-year-old Jennifer, 15-year-old Sarah, 17-year-old Eliza, and 13-year-old Amy. Jennifer and Eliza were the first to be identified, but this was just because their cars were in the parking lot of the yogurt shop. Amy and Sarah were identified by process of elimination. Over the next couple of days, it would be reported in the press that the four victims were teenage girls, which only added to the horrifying reality of the crime. It's hard not to see your loved ones and victims, you know, with all the what ifs. Like, what if she was in there at that time? Like, what if she had been there? The crime rattled everyone, especially to the members of the Austin Police Department. They had investigated similar crimes in the past, but nothing as shameless or as blindsiding as this. Reporters soon started referring to this case as the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. Sergeant Scott Carey of the Austin Police Department told reporters that weekend that he had been on the force 10 years and in Austin for 20 years and that this had been the worst he could remember. At the crime scene, it was quickly discovered that the back door had been left unlocked and that this is most likely how the culprit or culprits had made their way out of the shop. It was their gateway since the front door had been locked when first responders arrived and the keys were later found inside the shop. At the time, police wouldn't say whether or not the register had been tampered with or how, but it was later confirmed that a robbery had taken place. Following an audit of the shop, it would be determined that approximately $540 had been stolen from the yogurt shop, most of that coming from the cash register itself. 
The last transaction on the register log had shown a time of 11.03 p.m., three minutes after the shop was supposed to be closed and around 13 minutes after the shop doors were normally locked. If you remember me saying earlier that the last sale was done at 10.42 p.m., the 11.03 p.m. one was shown as a no-sell. If you don't know what that is, it's like a special button or special combination of keys that you can use to open the register without making a sell or someone had canceled a transaction. This is likely when the robbery took place and had either been done by the teens or by the culprit or culprits. A full-scale arson investigation had been launched and happened over that weekend. This investigation is what police hoped would determine exactly when the fire had been started and how. Reports say that the fire had been started in the kitchen area, which is where the girls' bodies had been found. Melvin Stahl, the Austin Police Department arson investigator, was tasked with investigating the fire himself and would state in his official report of the fire that it had been started at approximately 11.42 p.m. That was more than 40 minutes after the store was due to close and exactly 39 minutes after the no-sell transaction had been recorded on the register. This would indicate that the culprit or culprits had remained in the shop for about an hour before starting the fire, which had unfortunately destroyed and contaminated most of the crime scene. This isn't to mention the fact that the firefighters had no idea that there was still anyone in the building. In turn, the water from the fire hoses had also washed away a lot of evidence. This posed a big problem. Reports say that the fire was burning so hot that one of the victim's teeth had started to burn away. Their bodies began melting onto the floor and even some of their jewelry had melted, along with containers of cleaning supplies and even some cans of paint that had been left in the back storage room. It is absolutely astonishing that the firefighters were able to get the fire extinguished before it began spreading to the neighboring businesses. It was theorized that the styrofoam cups had been, like they had put lighter fluid in the styrofoam cups that had been placed around and on the victims' bodies, and they set them on fire to increase the spread of the flames. Now, styrofoam used to be incredibly, like, holy crap, flammable, okay? And when ignited, it would act almost like lighter fluid, burned intensely hot and melting and sticking like tar to anything it touched. And this alone would later cause speculation that lighter fluid may not have been used because the cups being stacked would create the same effect and that the burn marks discovered on the floor would have been strictly from the styrofoam burning insanely hot. It was believed that whoever was responsible for this knew that the substances involved would do a lot of damage to the crime scene super fast, which indicated prior experience in lighting fires, and that information would impact a very big portion of the investigation. I will be right back after this break. So, police had already determined that the crime had started as a robbery. They came to this conclusion because the cleaning supplies that had been left in the middle of the shop for seemingly no reason were just abandoned. One of the rags that the girls had been using 
had been what seemed like just dropped and forgotten about along with one of the frozen yogurt dispensers that had normally been changed every night during closing time. Sergeant Mike Huckabay of Austin Police Department verified this two days after the murders on December 8th when he told reporters, quote, it appears they were closing and in the process of cleaning up. I would say they were probably killed one after another. They appeared to be where they were shot, end quote. In the early days of the investigation, even though the girls were found undressed, bound, and gagged with their own clothing, it was not believed that any of them had been sexually assaulted when the autopsies were carried out by a local medical examiner. Like in many cases I've covered, district attorneys worked quickly to have those records sealed to prevent specific information from being leaked to the public. Despite all of that, it was public theory that more than one person was involved in the commission of the crime. Some evidence left behind indicated that there was more than one offender, which they had tried to destroy with the fire. According to Austin Police Department Lieutenant Andrews, they had been unsuccessful in destroying all the physical evidence. Like, police had learned that more than one gun had been used for the crime, small caliber weapons, and that the fire had been started with items found inside the shop. It was not believed that the offender or offenders had forced their way into the shop, which would indicate that they had most likely been inside the shop near closing time, which would in turn narrow in a timeline for investigators. This is when police started reaching out to people that may have been been around or seen something around the time of the murders. They were hoping that those that had been inside the yogurt shop before closing would come forward as they might have encountered the offenders and possibly could provide information that was invaluable to them and the victim's loved ones. In the following days, the company that owned the yogurt shop, Bryce Foods, had put together a $25,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of those that had committed this absolutely sickening crime. The owners even met with the victims' families that weekend, hoping to do whatever they could to support them through this tragic turn of events. And by Monday, word had spread across town and to the Lanier High School where three of the four victims attended school. The school had lost its cheerful edge, understandably so. Just Friday, they were hyped up about having winter break, and now they're just over the course of a weekend had lost three of their peers to a horrific crime. Paul Turner, the school principal, told the press that week that this heartbreak break was, quote, going to reach far. There were two seniors and a freshman, so it's going to hit a good number of kids, end quote even saying they would be grieving and they would be angry. They will be different feelings that they have, and they wanted to be ready to work with them in a compassionate and understanding way. And counselors even met with students on their first day back and were greeted with a lot of anger and frustration as these teenage teenagers struggled with coming to terms with this new reality. Even though Burnett Middle School was less heavily affected, the loss of Amy left a gaping hole in the hearts of her friends and teachers who couldn't believe she was really gone. One of Amy's friends, Terry Becker, told reporters with the Austin American Statesman that she had believed she hadn't believed the news and had gone to the yogurt shop that Saturday only to be greeted with the crime scene. Quote, when I went to the yogurt shop. It was like a hole being driven into my heart. I've lost one of my closest friends and I'll never see her again, end quote.
That was from Terry. Police dove deep into everything that came to mind. The interview with witnesses, they received tips, both pertinent and non-essential information. Of those tips, police narrowed in on people that had been in the yogurt shop in the hours before the crime itself took place and began to arrange more interviews. The police even explored the backstories to each victim, curious to see if any of the four victims had any kind of so-called skeletons in their closets. They looked for things like jealous ex-boyfriends and anything of that nature, things that would give someone a motive. Unfortunately, their pasts were squeaky clean. There was nothing that they had come across that would warrant any concern. At this point, the crime had seemed to happen randomly, a crime of opportunity maybe. As they were searching for more witnesses, the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office released their autopsies to investigators. It was revealed that three of the girls were burned beyond recognition. These were the three girls that were stacked on top of each other and were believed to be the eldest of the four, Jennifer, Eliza, and Sarah. This was determined by dental records. In their finding, it was also revealed that Amy had been the victim that was found several feet away from the others. According to some reports, she had been alive at the time that the firefighters arrived at the scene, but just barely, perishing just moments after they arrived. Supposedly, she had been trying to crawl away from the flames. She got as far as several feet, but her injuries were too much to bear. Each of the victims appeared to have been shot in the head, execution style, once. But oddly, Amy had been shot twice in the back of the head, with a different caliber than the others. And this is where the two culprits theory came in. The sexual assault theory started, and at first, it was just one of the girls. Amy, but later it had been speculated that more than one had been sexually assaulted. Police questioned Jennifer's boyfriend, and they had found his DNA on her, but come to find out, Sammy and Jennifer had started having sexual relations in the weeks before the murder, and that they had had sex before Jennifer had gone to work that day. A lot of this information, which came from the autopsy findings, would be revealed years later after the case had gone cold. And again, this is solely because the district attorney's office had those records sealed in fear of someone coming forward and falsely confessing or something of that nature. As I always state in most of my episodes where they seal records, uh, this is done a lot. People are sick and think it's cool to confess to such violent acts of crime and gruesome murders. Basically, any high-profile cases get these sick individuals reasoning behind why is beyond me. This was believed to be necessary in this case, especially because a lot of the physical evidence had been destroyed by the fire and then further contamination by the water from the fire hoses. Travis County District Judge John Weiser allowed for these records to be sealed so that confidentiality could be preserved, not only for the victims and their loved ones, but so that the investigation itself could become insulated by outside influences. Still, police expanded their search out into the local area, wondering if perhaps this crime was connected to others from the neighborhood. In the months before the murder, several robberies had taken place in the Hillside Center strip mall. This included a clothing store called Suzanne's that had been broken into approximately eight times in the months before. 
police also looked into possible connections to a murder that had taken place a few months prior with no luck. Both Sergeant Jones and Sergeant Huckabee believed that the crime was somehow connected to drugs, believing that the offenders were high at the time, which would explain the chaotic crime scene left behind. Jones had mentioned this to KLBJ Radio and Huckabee to the reporters. They speculated crack cocaine had been involved. In late December, police had released a profile of the killers, which had been created with the help of the FBI. This profile, which explored who the potential offenders were, also explained whether or not the public was at risk for any follow-up crimes. According to this profile, the offenders didn't plan this out, but they were familiar with the area. They were not at risk to strike again, but were dangerous enough to commit this crime when desperate. It was also determined that it was likely that these offenders were likely responsible for other fire-related crimes. They undeniably had a history of starting fire and probably had a criminal record that reflected that as well. Barbara, Jennifer and Sarah Harbison's mom, spoke to People Magazine in 1992 and asked, quote, What did we do wrong here? We moved to a nice house in a nice neighborhood. We did middle-class American things that you can do to protect your family and make it wholesome and right. If this can happen to us, it can happen to anyone, end quote. And let me tell you, I can absolutely get behind what she said. This is absolutely possible for anyone and everyone. You are never really safe from these types of things unless you live as a hermit underground, never seeing the light of day on lockdown by yourself. There is so much more to this case, and Austin had come to terms that the entire city had lost its innocence and as weeks began to stretch into months they continued waiting for police to bring them answers in the form of a suspect it became clear that answers were not in the near future it's hard to wait around for these things especially for victims families they have lost people they love and a piece of their hearts have been torn out and have gone forever the amount of turmoil they endure every day is undeniably one of the most painful, and though an answer will not heal the gaping wound, an answer would bring, even if minor, a sense of peace. I will continue this episode next week, so please join me next Monday for more. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe or follow button and tune in every Monday for a new episode. Episode suggestions can be sent to criminalbeautypod at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at criminalbeauty20 and on Instagram at criminalbeautypod.